Good morning, and the conversation begins here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. It's kind of cool out there, but it's going to go into the mid-80s today. No rain, hopefully, but no matter where you go, take 94 WIP with you. Always good conversation. And when we come back, wake the ladies, because we've got a topic for them that men need to understand as well. When we come back, we're going to be talking about polycystic ovary syndrome, PCOS. PCOS and a whole lot more when we come back here on 94 WIP. The WIP time, 6.01. And we're back, and it's 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. It's conversation. Our conversation this morning aimed at the ladies and those who love them. I'm pleased to welcome here for conversation Amy Medling. Amy is going to educate us about polycystic ovary syndrome. Good morning, Amy Medling. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me on your show. My my pleasure, please. Um, What is PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome? So PCOS is one of the most common endocrine system disorders found in women, and it's the most common cause of infertility in women. Recently, experts are saying that PCOS affects as many as five in five um, women in ten women, and um, I'm sorry, it's still so early. Yeah, I know. Um, it, it was it was one in ten women, and now it's um, as many as twenty percent of all women have some sign in system um, of PCOS, and that number is increasing. So we're kind of reaching epidemic proportions. And the scary statistic is as many as 50 to 70% of those women don't know they have it. And PCOS can lead to serious chronic illnesses like type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease, as well as endometrial cancer. So it's really important that women find out that they have PCOS. What are the symptoms? Okay, so... The symptoms are driven by hormonal imbalance and insulin resistance and and, um, systemic inflammation. So common signs of PCOS are um, centralized obesity or difficulty losing weight, especially around the middle, Um, fertility issues, as I had mentioned, and acne, hair loss, kind of like that male pattern, um, hair loss. Um, hair growth, and also 60% of women with PCOS have mood-related disorders, so things like depression and anxiety as well. Okay. Um, Why do you think it's on the rise? Well, I think um, that environmental factors, um, especially things like um, estrogen mimickers, um, BPA is... um, something that women with PCOS seem to have more of in their blood. So, um, and, and also diet plays a huge role um, in PCOS. So I think that poor diet choices are also affecting or kind of maybe switching on the, um, the, the genetics uh, that can cause PCOS. What does diet have to do with it? 
Well, diet, so if you're eating a sort of st standard American diet, it's extremely inflammatory. Um, so it can, you know, trigger um, some of the inflammation response. But women with PCOS also have to be very careful um, with managing their blood sugar because they tend to be more insulin resistant. And insulin resistance also drives many of the symptoms of PCOS as well. How do we treat it? So my book that I wrote, Healing PCOS, the 21-Day Plan for Reclaiming Your Health and Life with Polycystic Ovarian Syndrome, um, I really believe that so much of PCOS can be treated with lifestyle modification. So changing your diet, changing the way that you move your body and exercise, making sure that you're getting enough sleep, supplementing with some key nutritional supplements, and making sure that you have time for self-care to really reduce the stress in your life. Is it curable? PCOS is not curable. There is no cure. There is no magic pill. But I believe that there is um, a healing process, and you can um, absolutely thrive with PCOS. How do those who love women with PCOS, how can they help? That's a great question. Um, actually, my husband wrote an article about how to support your partner with PCOS. Um, and, you know, I think that after um, having PCOS myself and talking to so many women with PCOS, that we need partners um, and husbands that can really go along the journey with us in terms of changing your lifestyle and, you know, not asking for a different meal when we have to eat more vegetables and clean protein and, um, you know, just making sure that you're, you're supporting your wife in terms of what, what she's eating um, is, I think, one of the biggest things that you can do to support your, um, your loved one with PCOS. So don't ask for a whole lot of pizza. Don't ask for another pizza and don't eat cookies in front of her when she's trying to, you know, um, like take sugar out of her uh, or reduce the sugar in her diet. <laughs> How did you discover you had PCOS? Yeah, so um, I now, looking back, I know I had some signs and symptoms of PCOS as early as like age 15, um, but I wasn't actually given a PCOS diagnosis until I was 31 when I was suffering some infertility and needed to see a reproductive endocrinologist um, for you know, helping me to get pregnant, and that's when I was diagnosed with PCOS. Did it run in your family? It does. My mother, um, you know, we now know has PCOS, and I venture to say both my maternal and paternal um, grandmothers did as well. They both had fertility issues and many of the symptoms of PCOS. So for me, there's definitely a genetic component. Interesting to me that it doesn't affect men, obviously, because they don't have ovaries. Well, um, some experts believe that there is sort of a male version of PCOS. Um, you know, some men who um, have, like, metabolic syndrome and problems with insulin resistance and, um, you know, may have things like, you know, the, the male pattern baldness that I had mentioned earlier, um, that, you know, it could be um, 
actually passed down from from their mothers to you know their her male offspring as well. So yeah, there is some thought around that. Now you started something a support entity called PCOS Diva. What is it? So PCOS Diva is um, a, a website, um, PCOSDiva.com, to support women with PCOS who you know really want to um, take con- take sort of um, control into their own hands and and no longer want to think and feel like a victim. You know, I believe that knowledge is power. So empowering women with um, with really expert advice from myself as well as many other doctors and naturopaths and um, nurse practitioners uh, to really give you the information and the tools that you need so that you can take charge of your life and really start thriving. You're listening to 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name is Peter Solomon. It's Conversation. My guest this morning, Amy Medling. Amy is author of the new book, Healing PCOS, a 21-day plan for reclaiming your health and life with polycystic polycystic ovary syndrome. Amy, um, do doctors understand this phenomena? Well, I think doctors are beginning to understand it better. It's a very complex syndrome, and, you know, I don't even know if we, um, we all really understand it um, completely, but I do think that doctors are getting more educated. There's um, this month is PCOS Awareness Month, and um, some of our nonprofits have made some, you know, big inroads into creating PCOS awareness. And in fact, there's some new guidelines that just came out for treatment guidelines for um, the medical community. So I think it's getting there, but still with that statistic of 50 to 70% of women undiagnosed, I still think we have a long way to go. The reason I ask is, I mean, if you walk into your doctor and present these symptoms, is he going to think PCOS immediately, or is that going to be the last thing he thinks of? Oh, yeah. So it actually takes between two to three doctors and two to three years for a woman to get a diagnosis. So, no, they, they don't always, um, you know, look at a woman and, you know, can diagnose on the spot for sure. And oftentimes then, you know, the, the blood work that's needed um, gets overlooked. And I think that, you know, there's, there's several reasons. I think a lot of women like myself who have, you know, moms with thin hair or grandmothers that had problems getting pregnant, you sort of just chalk it up to that's the way it is in my family. And so a lot of women don't even um, you really mention their syndrome, their symptoms to their doctor. Um, and then also a lot of doctors sort of treat um, – Symptoms. So if a woman has acne, she goes to the dermatologist, or if she's got some um, period cycle problems, then she'll go to the gynecologist, or if she's got mood issues, she'll go see um, you know, a psychologist or a psychiatrist. And so I think that there isn't, um, you know, doctors aren't really kind of putting the pieces together to see that the root cause is PCOS. And again, you say there's no medication for it. Well, there are, um, th- there's no, um, like, pharmaceutical cure. There are some treatments that are used, so the birth control pill um, can sort of balance out hormones and um, give women sort of a pill bleed every month because um, many women with PCOS do not have 
um, regular cycles, but it really acts as a Band-Aid, um, and once you come off of the pill, often your symptoms come back um, worse. And then also the diabetic drug metformin is used off-label to, to help with the insulin resistance issues of PCOS. So there are some pharmaceutical treatments, but there, it, there really is no um, you know, cure. That's interesting to me, the birth control pill and metformin, because they both have their issues, too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and um, it's really important if you are if you're listening and you are on metformin for, for diabetes, um, but certainly women with PCOS, you need to supplement with B12 because metformin um, can really severely deplete B12 in your body. So that, that's a real, um, you know, side effect of metformin. And with the birth control pill, uh, women with PCOS are at two times higher risk of blood clots. Um, they deplete B vitamins like B12 as well, and it increases insulin resistance, which is, you know, one of the things that we're trying to avoid <laughs> with PCOS. So, yeah, you're right. Both have, um, you know, their own um, problems. Why did you decide to put your own story out there in the book? Well, you know, I, I, knowing how much that I suffered with symptoms of PCOS, it was probably when I was in my early 30s, I felt way too young to feel so old and just so sick and tired of feeling sick and tired. It was really debilitating and um, affected the quality of my life and the way that I could be there for my young children and my husband. And I, you know, I really embarked on this long journey of trying to figure out what worked for me in terms of lifestyle change because I couldn't tolerate the birth control pill or metformin as, as treatments. Um, and it took a long time to sort of figure out this protocol that helped heal my, um, heal my PCOS and put me into a place, and, you know, although there's no cure because if I went back on my old lifestyle, those symptoms would come back. But right now, on paper, I don't have PCOS. My lab work is all beautiful. Um, but I wanted to shortcut that process for other women who were suffering. And, you know, writing my book was a really great way, I felt like, for me to do that for women with PCOS who are, are having, you know, problems getting their symptoms under control. So many illnesses, syndromes, have a charity dealing with them, Alzheimer's, diabetes, cancer. Does PCOS have anything like that? Well, PCOS has a wonderful organization called PCOS Challenge, and PCOS Challenge um, advocates, they raise money and awareness um, to help, uh, you know, lots of different aspects of advancing sort of the um, effort of, you know, making life better for women with PCOS. So there's um, a big effort underway in um, Congress, uh, you know, to, add, to sort of lobby um, are the House and the Senate to make PCOS month September, sort of the official awareness month of September, and to increase funding for research. And I know that the, the Senate has passed that resolution. We're still, you know, waiting for the House to pass the resolution, and hopefully that will move forward. Um, PCOS Challenge also hosts a symposium every year, and um, the PCOS Symposium is next weekend in Orlando, and it includes um, a whole day-long event of 
women um, coming together to listen to experts, um, you know, talk about how to, you know, improve their life and to advocate for themselves. And then on Sunday there's, a, you know, a big fundraiser fun run. So there, there is, you know, a lot going on in the PCOS community. And there's another organization called the PCOS Awareness Association, and they do some wonderful things as well for the community. If we learn one thing about PCOS from your book, what do you want us to learn? Well, I want women to know that, you know, they don't need to wait for the magic pill, that they are the magic pill, and they need to you know, start moving forward, making um, healthy choices for themselves in terms of, you know, what they think, how they move, um, and, you know, what they eat and how they take care of themselves. And there is a lot of hope for women with PCOS to thrive, to get pregnant, um, and to live the life they were meant to live without PCOS holding them back. You mentioned you have children. What do you have, boys, girls? So I have two boys um, that were um, conceived with the help of fertility um, drugs and um, help from a reproductive endocrinologist. But then, but when I was 37, after doctors told me that it would, um, I would probably never get pregnant again without fertility treatment, I got pregnant with um, my, my beautiful daughter, and she is really a, a direct you know, product of living this life as a PCOS diva and changing my, my lifestyle. Um, and, you know, she, she has the, the risk of developing PCOS as well, but I'm hoping that, you know, through the, the way I'm teaching her to, to sort of treat her body and take care of herself, that those genes won't be expressed. That's the reason I ask, with her, their grandmothers and now mama, at some point, are you going to have a, do- a talk with her about PCOS? Yeah, oh, gosh, she already knows about PCOS because it's something <laughs> that I'm talking about, you know, just in my work on a daily basis. But, you know, I, I explained to her why, um, you know, not, not that we can't all have something that we truly love to eat. Um, it may not be the best choice for us, but, um, you know, on a, like, 80% of what we should be eating should be really... Um, you know, helping to quell the inflammation and balancing our blood sugar. And, you know, I'm teaching her all of the things that, that I teach women so that she'll be empowered to make healthy choices for herself. Is there a website for PCOS? Well, there's, as I mentioned, PCOSchallenge.org is a great website um, for, for advocacy, um, PCOSDiva.com, um, and you can learn more about my book at HealingPCOS.com. And the PCOS Association, as I mentioned, is PCOSAA.org. And I want to say thank you to Amy Medling for our conversation this morning and for her new book, Healing PCOS, a 21-day plan for reclaiming your health and life with polycystic ovary syndrome. Thank you, Amy Medley. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate you spreading PCOS awareness. We try. Thank you, Amy. Bye. Bye-bye. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. More good conversation in just a bit. And you're listening to 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon, and it's Conversation here on 94 WIP.
chances are you got up this morning, maybe got a drink of water from the sink, filled up the coffee pot. How clean was that water you used? Well, let's find out as we talk about my next guest. I'm pleased to welcome here Ed Perry. He comes to us from the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Good morning, Ed Perry. Hi, Peter. How are you? I'm fine. Ed, how likely was that water? How clean was that water we likely used? Uh, well, when you look at what's happened in the past, uh, this uh, your water is is certainly a lot cleaner than it used to be. Uh, you have to remember where I came from. I was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio, overlooking the steel mills. So, uh, right near where the Cuyahoga River caught on fire, and the same river today now holds a run of salmon. Hmm. So it's quite a bit different than it used to be. And then there's the problems in Flint, Michigan. Yes. Uh, I was just watching uh, TV last night about that. And uh, it's pretty remarkable um, how many people knew that their water was contaminated with lead. No one did anything about it. Why do you think that is? Ignorance, greed, stupidity? Uh, probably uh, all of the above. Um, you know, I, I don't know all the facts about the Michigan uh, situation, but uh, I, I don't know if your listeners uh, know much about the Land and Water Conservation Fund. No, uh, we do. Actually, this yeah. would be now would be a good time to tell us. Yeah, well, I call it the best conservation program that uh, most of the public has never heard of. This was a fund that was established back in 1965 by Congress to compensate the United States for the oil and gas the drillers were taking out of the Gulf of Mexico. And that money was uh, – these, these were royalty payments that these drillers had to pay the government. So for the past uh, 54 years, almost – $50 billion has been paid to the United States. And this money, a small portion of it, $900 million a year, went to uh, the states all across the country to fund uh, parks, swimming pools, playgrounds, rails to trails, access for fishing and uh, hunting and uh, boating access. So Counties like uh, Montgomery and uh, uh, Bucks County got over $11 million. The city of Philadelphia has got millions of dollars for, for playground, playgrounds and swimming pools. Um, you know, just to name a few, the, the Roosevelt Playground, the Heron Pool, uh, Mill Creek Park, uh, Nice Town Park. So the people... Uh, and down in your area have gotten millions of dollars for all these playgrounds and parks and swimming pools, and no one has, knows that they were funded largely through the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Well, but what happened to the rest of that money? Um, well, the royalty payments, are, you know, for the, they're to the federal government, so uh, a large portion of that money went into the federal treasury. But $900 million a year was supposed to go to the states to fund all these great projects. And Pennsylvania has benefited especially getting uh, 
almost $350 million over the life of the fund and has funded 1,500 of these projects all across the state, from the smallest community to the largest, like Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. Uh, we've benefited enormously. And now this fund is set to expire on September 30th. So unless uh, your listeners pick up the phone and call their congressman and senator, Senator Casey and Senator Toomey, um, this fund will expire, and that money will just go into the black hole of the federal treasury. Huh. That's interesting to me because Congress seems so obsessed with other things. Are they paying attention to the expiration of the fund? Um, barely. <laughs> then, you know, there's a firestorm every day in Congress, as you know, uh, caused by uh, the leader of that party. Mm. So they're barely paying attention. Do you think calls make a difference? Um, absolutely. I've I've uh, talked to district office managers for uh, the senators and congressmen, and they say if we get 10 calls on something, that is enough for us to raise it, uh, that issue with our boss because they, those 10 calls represent, they think, represent hundreds of other people who, who just won't take the time to pick up the phone and make a phone call. So I urge your listeners, uh, if you want to see continued ball fields and access to the river and, uh, and parks, public parks and greenways and rails to trails, pick up the phone and call your congressman. Let them know you you know you want this this uh, program, the best conservation program they never heard of. You want it to continue. Do you have any sense about how the White House feels about the expiration? Uh, President Trump's budget proposed to X out the money completely uh, this year. Mm-mm-mm. But enough said about that. Um, yeah, yes. Are there things you can recommend we do locally to keep our water clean? Um, you know, everyone can do do uh, do something, but really, it's this is like uh, this is really what government is designed to do. Government is there to protect our our environment and the health of people, and provide for our nat- our national defense. So, it's really the responsibility of our government to, to take action to protect us. Because, you know, what can each person do uh, to protect our water? It's, it's really not very much uh, when you live in a big urbanized center like Philadelphia. So we do have to rely on our government, and I think you folks in the city of Philadelphia really have a top-notch uh, operation in terms of trying to protect your water quality. I know, for example, though, having an older housing stock, there are many lead pipes, which give off lead in the water, and a lot of people take their old medications and flush them down the toilet, and that also pollutes water. Yes, that's that's a good point. Um, I know uh, they've done tests on fish and have found uh, uh, quite a few fish with both of female and male sex organs, they are uh, they are 
confused by all of these drugs that were flushing down the toilet. So uh, I know, um, know, for example, I live in State College, and there's places you can take these pills uh, to get rid of them so you're not putting them into the landfill or flushing them down the toilet. What other things does the fund do besides advocate for this money? Well, that is that is the purpose of the fund. It's uh, to provide public recreation uh, to compensate for the the, you know, the money that uh, the drillers made from drilling in the Gulf. And it's it's amazing how many uh, you know it's all it's in addition to the parks that I mentioned, uh, all of the Civil War battlefields uh, have you know like Valley Forge have uh, Land and Water Conservation Fund money, all of the national parks, uh, Acadia, Yellowstone, Grand Tetons, the Everglades, that has uh, Land and Water Conservation Fund money in it. Um, the Flight 93 Memorial over in Shanksville where that the, you know, the passengers took over the plane and crashed it into the ground, That's that's got nine, $10 million of, of uh, Land and Water Conservation Fund money. Even uh, these national historic sites, like uh, the uh, the school that uh, the the Brown versus uh, Board of Education National Historic Site in Kansas has gotten Land and Water Conservation Fund money. Does the fund also support work on the infrastructure for delivering water? It does not. That's that's not the purpose of the fund. If you look at the the charter of the fund, it's to preserve, create, and ensure access to outdoor recreation facilities so as to strengthen the health of all Americans. So you can see this really doesn't uh, do much uh, for protecting your your water quality. That's not the purpose of that fund. The, The... the uh, the act that protects your water quality as supposed to is the Clean Water Act. It was passed in 1972. Okay. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning is an expert on the Clean Water Landing Clean Water Conservation Fund. We'll be back in just a bit. And we're back. It's 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. It's conversation, our conversation this morning with Ed Perry. Ed comes to us from the Save Land and Water Conservation Fund. Ed, do you think it's yeah. going to get? Do you think it's going to get renewed? I know you're hopeful, uh, but do you think really? I I, I do think uh, it's going to be renewed. Uh, the, the only question is, uh, are they going to? fund it uh, fully as uh, they passed the legislation back in 1965. Uh, that's the only question. Um, there's, there's broad support for permanently reauthorizing because the, there's been enormous pressure from the public you know, about this fund, particularly from, from the municipalities and the parks departments who have benefited enormously uh, by providing all these public recreation facilities for their local residents. So even though many people uh, don't know about this fund, 
believe me, the, the local, local municipalities like the city of Philadelphia who have benefited enormously from this fund, they, they know how valuable this fund is. So um, their weighing in is, is making a difference in terms of getting permanent reauthorization. The only question is, uh, are, will Congress fully fund this thing so that we can continue to support all these great places that uh, you know your citizens, like in Philadelphia, use? Any chance the money might increase? Well, <laughs> it's supposed to be funded at, to the tune of $900 million a year. These, these are royalty payments now, for, remember. There's no taxpayer dollars in the Land and Water Conservation Fund, Zippo. So the, we'll, we'll see if Congress will agree to fund this fully at the $900 million uh, a year level. That's that's what we're hoping for. Um, now you say it comes from the royalties from drilling in the Gulf. Any chance there's going to be royalties coming from fracking, for example? Uh, no, th- this is a federal program, and so the the you know the people who drill, like in the state of Pennsylvania, uh, should be taxed like every other state that they've been in by our you know by our state government but the 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 party that's in charge of uh, the state government at the house and the senate level refused to tax these drillers uh, which is unlike any other state in our country and every other state the drillers are taxed and that money goes back to the people uh, for for parks and things like that, so this what you're talking about is entirely different from this land and water conservation fund. The drilling in the state is regulated by you know the state government, and the land and water conservation fund is is a federal operation. Now you say call your um, federal representatives. Do you want us to call district offices or down there in Washington? Uh, no, call your district offices. Uh, as you, if anyone has made a phone call, likely knows you call into Washington. It's hard to get through, but district offices are easy to get through, and they are the ones that pass this message on to their uh, to their congressman in Washington or their senator in Washington. And Senator Casey, incidentally, is fully on board with permanently reauthorizing the Land and Water Conservation Fund at the full level. Uh, so Senator Toomey would, would be someone that folks would, would contact because the House has recently voted to permanently reauthorize the fund coming out of the House uh, subcommittee. Uh, there'll be a full vote in the House, but there's broad pipe, bipartisan support in the House for this. The Senate is still a question mark. So Senator Toomey's office in Philadelphia would be the one to contact. Mm. Is there a website for the fund? Uh, If you go to lwcfcoalition.org, people will get all the information they'd ever want to know about the the Land and Water Conservation Fund. So that's lwcf. Coalition 
org. Now you mentioned O-R-G. you mentioned coalition. Who else is involved? Boy, every parks uh, committee, uh, the state parks people, the uh, citizens uh, for Pennsylvania's future, Penn Environment, uh, backcountry hunters and anglers, um, Trout Unlimited. There is a huge number of conservation groups all across the country that are, are working very hard to get this program reauthorized. And the, the National Wildlife Federation, who I work for, is a big player in this. Uh, we're leading the charge on this. Have I missed anything, Dan? No, I think you've covered just about everything, Peter. All right. Well, let, let's then sneak in a little bit for the National Wildlife Federation. Who are they? Um, it's This is an organization that was founded uh, in the 1930s uh, to really support outdoor recreation and, and getting our kids involved in nature. As you know, especially today, our kids are so focused on their video screens that we're losing people that like to, to be outdoors, that like to fish, to hunt, to bird watch, and things like that. Um, so it's a lot different today than, you know, when I, growing up, when I was a kid, we didn't have computers and video games. So we, we, we were outside and today our kids are spending way more time, uh, inside on their computers and video games. So the National Wildlife Federation's focus is getting people outside to enjoy the outdoors because what you don't know, you don't love. And so that's a big part of what I do. I work, I also work on uh, climate change. And um, as we're seeing from Hurricane Florence, our changing climate is really uh, the fuel that is causing these treacherous weather events that we've been having in our country uh, since the year 2000. So we're involved in uh, many uh, different conservation fights, and this Land and Water Conservation Fund is, is a big one that we're hoping to win. Amen to that. And I'd like to say thank you to Ed Perry from the Land and Water Conservation Fund State Coalition for joining us here this morning on Conversation. Thank you, Ed. All right. Thanks, Peter. And let's all remember that old song, they pay paradise, paved paradise and put up a parking lot. And if we're not careful, it just may happen. And you've been listening to Conversation here on 94WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. More in just a bit. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94WIP, All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. And it's going to be a decent WIP day out there. It's in the high, high 60s now going up to like 83, 84 degrees, no sign of rain. But no matter where you go, take 94 WIP with you. Always good conversation. And we'll be right back after this sports update. And the conversation continues here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio as we ease on into WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. One, <coughs> one of our cable networks has a campaign, a race to hate. And in this fractured world of ours, it's an important, important message, a race to hate. And one lady who makes a contribution to erasing the hate in her new novel for children, young adults, is Catherine Marsh. 
and she's my guest this morning. So let's say good morning to Catherine Marsh. Good morning, Catherine. Good morning, Peter. How are you? I'm fine. Erase the hate. Is in one level that's what your book is about, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is about erasing the hate, and it's also about addressing fear, which I think causes a lot of hate. Um, my book is actually set in Brussels, Belgium, but it has a lot of relevance to uh, what's going on right now in this country. Now, why Brussels, Belgium? So three years ago in 2015, uh, my husband uh, was uh, given a job to uh, cover European security in Brussels. So our whole family moved there, including uh, our two children, me, uh, even my mother came with us. And we all ended up living there in a really fascinating time because in 2015, it was the height of the European refugee crisis. There were a million uh, refugees coming into Europe. Um, and that same year, there was also the Brussels lockdown and terror attacks. Uh, so there, it was a much more eventful uh, time than we had expected. That must have been terrifying to be in Brussels at the time of the terror attacks and having children as well. Yes, it, it was. And, you know, this is a, a sort of sad to say, but I guess it's part of our world. It wasn't my first experience with a terror attack. I was in New York when uh, 9-11 happened. Um, but it is a different experience when you have children. I did not have children back then in New York, and uh, our children were at school when this happened, and uh, I went over to the school and picked them up because we just did not know what was going to happen next, and it was a very frightening experience. Must have been tempting to pack up and come home. You know, it was, but as I said, you know, this seems to be a global phenomenon right now. And, you know, when we left the U.S., I was worried about school shootings. Um, and, uh, you know, so we had had conversations with our children about what to do in an active shooter situation. And, um, you know, this in some ways seemed to be we, we had these conversations again about how to be aware of security and where exits are and what to do if there is a uh, terrorist attack. On one level, just so far... Your story is one of ain't no place to hide. Yes, exactly, exactly. And I think that's important because we always have this idea that we can get away and run off and go somewhere else. And I think in this world, we're all in it together right now. Given all that, why'd you decide to write Nowhere Boy? So I decided to write it in one, one uh, reason is I wanted to give my children a way to process what they had experienced in Brussels. Um, I also wanted to write about this experience of the refugee crisis um, because, in part, it was happening all around us. And in, in Brussels, there is a park, Park Maximilian, which is right in the middle of the city. It's surrounded by tall office buildings, and, uh, you know, it's the heart of the European capital, of course, Brussels. And during that summer, uh, tons of refugees ended up there because the Office of Foreigners was there, and it, they were so backlogged that people ended up sleeping in that park, and volunteers took over the job of, of taking care of these people. Um, and I was both very touched by the number of people who came out, ordinary citizens, to take care of the refugees, but it was also the glaring contrast of this, you know, capital of the European Union and gleaming office towers and a tent city in the middle of that really made me want to write about this issue. Briefly, what's the plot of Nowhere Boy? So Nowhere Boy is the story of an American boy, Max, who's an underachiever in a family of achievers, and his family moves to Brussels for a year for his father's job. And it's about the friendship that he develops with Ahmed, who is an orphaned Syrian refugee um, who's around the same age, who doesn't want to be in Belgium either. Um, and it's about the bonds that they uh, share and their friendship as it develops. And if that's not enough, you throw in a little World War II? 
I do. So I work, one of the things that really inspired me to write the book as well was that the street that we ended up living on in Brussels had been renamed after World War II for a gentleman named Albert Genard. And he had uh, hidden a Jewish teenager in his house during the war uh, for a year. And eventually uh, he had been betrayed by a neighbor and was arrested. Um, and his story was so just, it was such a powerful story of how he had taken on this risk um, to save this, this boy. And um, I really wanted to work that into the book because I think it's very relevant right now to talk about what heroism is. And to me, this gentleman was a hero and his family took on this incredible risk. And here we were in another time in which there were uh, a lot of people really in need. Um, and I really wanted to write for young people about that question of how do you uh, reach out to people, how do you be open to people, especially people who are different than you. Why, though, writing for young people? I mean, there are a lot of adults who need your book, too. <laughs> That's a great question, Peter. Um, I, my background is as a journalist, and I was the uh, managing editor of the New Republic magazine. So I was, I was working on a lot of uh, political journalism and journalism for, uh, for adults. But I really think that uh, children need books that help them process the world and that also help them deal with some of the darker attitudes that are out there right now. Um, and so I decided I wanted to write this for kids because I really have a lot of hope in the future generation. That's remarkable to have hope in the face of so much difficulty. Yes, but I think, I think that's, a very, that's something we need. And I think when you write about difficult topics for children, it's very important to show them ways in which they can do things and change things so that they don't feel hopeless and helpless. Um, and that's a big part of this book. Now, in your book, though, Ahmad, the young Syrian boy, yes. is an unaccompanied child. That's that, correct. That's an, a phenomenon happening every day in Europe, isn't it? Yes, not only in Europe, in this country as well. There, there are uh, teenagers that come unaccompanied. Um, as we know, there's a family separation uh, you know, policy in this country as well, so children are, are finding themselves alone. In Europe, the year that we were there, there were a number of these, uh, I think it was about 80,000 unaccompanied minors in Europe, um, children who either got separated from their families, that uh, lost, who lost their families, um, who were sent ahead in some cases by families, hoping that maybe their children could get a foothold in Europe. Um, these, these were, you know, children, young people under 18. And what was incredible to me and really made me want to write this book is this particular statistic, which was that there was about 2,600 kids who came into Belgium in 2015 who were alone and under 14 years old. Under 14 years under old? Under 14 years old. How do, they, how do they survive and cope? That's... Well, the, I mean, they're a very incredibly vulnerable population, and that's what's so difficult about this is that they really do uh, fall prey in a lot of uh, situations to traffickers and to uh, people who have, you know, bad intentions. Um, and not only that, but when they get to where they're going, they have to cope with uh, being in, a, uh, in an institution, um, with learning a new language, with, in many cases, a lot of these children have also had interrupted schooling. So they're already at a, a disadvantage uh, in terms of, you know, integrating. Um, you know, so, so they have an incredibly difficult path. And in order to do this book, you know, I, I 
interviewed particularly one unaccompanied minor who had come at 17 um, by himself to Europe. Um, and it, it, it is a very lonely and difficult experience, absolutely. Was interviewing refugee children the way you researched the book? I interviewed a lot of refugee families, and so Ahmed is from Aleppo, the city of Aleppo. Um, and so I made a real effort to go find families who had, who had come from Aleppo, who were from Aleppo, and could tell me about the city before the war, as well as their journey into Europe um, in 2015. Um, and that really brought to life a lot of these very incredible details. Um, and I'll give you an example of one, Peter. Uh, there is actually, I was talking to a family who had come, and a lot of, for a lot of the refugees, the sea journey from Turkey to Greece was one of the most difficult and traumatic parts because they were often uh, in these inflatable boats and, uh, and, you know, people didn't know how to swim and there was a lot of fear and there were drownings. Um, and when I was interviewing one, uh, one woman, she was very emotional about this and she told me this detail about how some of the uh, refugees had gotten life jackets that would make you sink instead of swim, and they were being sold by profiteers who just wanted to make money, and so they made these very low-quality life jackets that would actually make people sink. Um, and that was just such a horrifying detail. And so, you know, there are details like that that I just really looked for to bring this story to life. Coming from the city of Aleppo, too, a city that's probably not there anymore. Exactly. I mean, so much of Aleppo has been destroyed, and it's a very ancient city. It's a crossroads of civilizations. Um, I think one of the things I wanted American kids to know is that a lot of uh, Syrians came from, you know, middle-class backgrounds, educated backgrounds. Um, Aleppo has this wonderful history of, of poetry, um, you know, of food. The food culture there is incredible. Um, and so much of that was destroyed. But does what you learned about your European refugees translate to what you know and have discovered about American refugees? Well, they're very different. I mean, one of the points I wanted to make in this book is that uh, refugees are a very diverse population, and that's something that I think is a mistake that gets made that, that causes prejudice in a lot of ways because people don't realize all the different experiences um, even among refugees from a similar geographical place. So I think in that sense there's a lot of differences between refugees who come um, and immigrants and migrants. Um, but I do explore this question, and I think this is related to what you're saying about a lot of people here say, well, the people coming um, into this country, particularly from uh, Central and South America, are more migrants than refugees. And people try to make that, that distinction, a migrant being somebody who's come for economic reasons and a refugee being somebody who is escaping war um, or some other co violent conflict. And, you know, I, I sort of try to delve into that a little bit in the book because those categories do get very murky. Um, and there are a lot of people who come from countries where there's no longer an act of war, but the economy has been destroyed, um, and there's, uh, there's other types of dangers there. Um, so it's really hard to parse that, to say always when somebody is a migrant and a refugee. And the point of my book is that, you know, in both America and in Europe, um, you know, you really have to look at individual stories and individuals rather than lumping people together. Hard to do when it's big bureaucracies are what responds. 
Absolutely, absolutely, and I think uh, you know that's something that. Uh, but there's 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 a government response, and then there's the response of ordinary people. And one of the things that really touched me about Albert Genard's story is that he was an ordinary person. Um, he was a you know just a citizen who decided to do something. Um, and I think that we all have that uh, capacity as individuals to do something, to be a little kinder and a little more open to people. Um, and so that was a great sort of moral compass for the book of having this character in it and weaving that story through it. Now, the American boy in your book, modeled after your own son? <laughs> you know, I definitely, I, will, I definitely took from my children's lives. Um, they went to a school called uh, École de Bonheur in French. It's the School of Happiness in English. Um, and it was such a great evocative name of a school, I had to put it in the book. Um, but obviously I fictionalized uh, the story. But they're, you know, going through the, this experience as expats and really having the experience of going into a school, which my children did, that we put them in a French-Belgian school. They did not speak French when they went in, um, and having to learn a new language, having to adapt to the culture, was something that, uh, you know, I was able to write about firsthand. Um, and it really gives you a lot of compassion for what refugees and migrants and all the people coming into countries, immigrants, uh, go through. And I had three grandparents who were immigrants. And um, I thought a lot about, particularly my grandmother, who I, I grew up with, who um, was uh, from Eastern Europe, from Ukraine, and her English wasn't very good. And I remember I used to, we used to always chuckle about it and everything. But when I got to uh, Belgium and really had to, to, to be a parent in a school where I did not speak the language that well, my French is very basic, you know, I realized how difficult that experience is and then was able to extrapolate and think about that for people who had come with absolutely nothing and no resources um, and were struggling to do this as refugees. Well, it just occurred to me, in their own way, your own child was a refugee, wasn't he? Well, I would say my child was an expat. I think there's a real difference because we had we, we were doing this by choice, first of all, and we have resources, um, obviously, that refugees don't, um, and we were there, you know, in, in a legal capacity. Um, so we had a lot that was, you know, that made our life a lot easier. But that said, it was still a difficult experience. Um, and I think that it's, it's so important for Americans because – you know, so many Americans, their immigrant history is many generations back. Um, and so I think it's important to be reminded of this experience because we live in, in a mostly monolingual culture. Um, I think a lot of people have Spanish as a second language, but, but we're really an English-speaking country. And it's, it, you know, so we're in our linguistic comfort zone in this country. You can go anywhere and speak English. Um, and the experience of being somewhere where you can't speak the language, I think, is really actually helps you, being outside of your comfort zone helps you sort of feel compassion for so many other people who have the experience of not speaking the native language and coming to a country. And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Catherine Marsh. Catherine is author of the new book for young adults, Nowhere Boy. Now, Catherine, I need you to stay with me. i got to run a few commercials. Okay. We'll be back in just a bit. And we're back. It's WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Catherine Marsh, her new novel, Nowhere Boy. Now, Catherine, you mentioned you used to be managing editor of the New Republic. Yes, very that's correct. Di very different writing, isn't it? Yes, yes. And I was an editor there, so I was uh, in, in charge of editing a lot of stories about world affairs and national politics. How do you describe what the New Republic um, published under your tenure? 
I would say they published a lot of different uh, profiles, and I, my, I specialize in narrative stories, which are stories that really have a, uh, a you know, a beginning, a middle, and end, and uh, sort of pull the reader through it. And it's something that I actually use a lot in my uh, children's book writing because I want to engage my readers and uh, tell them a story. Well, but in the New Republic, would you say it's to the left, to the right, or somewhere in the center? I would say we were probably uh, to the center left. Okay. Yes. Um, is it hard not to take that perspective then, and or is it easy to infuse it in a fictional story for children? That's a great question. I, you know, for me, these are different things that I do, um, the journalism and the, uh, the fiction writing. But one of the things, and I did not agree with everything that the New Republic, uh, you know, supported. Um, you know, that, I, I, I work there. Uh, without having sharing all the same opinions as the magazine. Um, but one of the things that I really wanted to strive for in this book is to really talk not just about uh, political viewpoints, but about the importance of listening to different sort of viewpoints. Um, and, you know, one of the things I felt was really important is to have characters in this book who were very upset about the refugee influx um, and to let them explain why. Um, because I think that one of the things that we've stopped doing in this country is really listening to each other. You know, as soon as we hear opinions that we don't agree with, we put up a wall. Um, but there's, there's validity in what people say. Like, I, I'm not one of these people who thinks that, you know, if somebody has a different opinion in me th than me that they're, you know, that they're not worth listening to. Because I think it's very important to find common ground, first of all, which, which we often have in our opinions, um, and not to jump into uh, judgment. I think that's very important, and that's one of the messages of this book as well, is to hear people out. What do you think happened to our ability to listen? Well, that's a great question, Peter. I think what happened to our ability to listen is that fear, um, you know, prevents listening. And when we're frightened and we feel threatened, you know, you get a a sort of a flight or fight response. And I think people are in that mode right now in this country. Um, and that what we need to do is sort of try to calm down and take a breath and just try to listen to each other and find some of these commonalities. And I think, frankly, I think one of the reasons this has happened is because there's so much economic anxiety and people really feel that there's not much of a safety net, that, you know, they could really end up in very dire straits and that feeling makes everything feel very, uh, very fraught and very weighted. Um, and so people get, get easily into the territory of anger um, and fear and, uh, rather than just being able to listen to each other. But the White House tells us the economy's just chugging right along and doing better than ever. Yes, the economic, but, but here's the thing, Peters. I think that you know, the economic indicators are not... I, we always look at them as a uh, indicator of people's, you know, happiness and contentment and their their own personal uh, financial situations. And more and more in this country, I think that there's been divergence in that. Um, you know, the stock market does very well, and yet a lot of people in this country don't feel like they're doing well and, and don't feel like their children are going to do well. Um, so I think that that really is something we have to grapple with. We've lost our ability to listen and to hear. How about in Europe? Does it exist? Oh, it's the same. I mean, I, I wrote the book also because there's there's trouble there of, of people listening and hearing. And I think in many ways Europe is in a uh, – they're in a very difficult situation, um, you know, in part because 
their democratic institutions in many cases are much younger than ours at this point. Um, and that's particularly true with some of the countries in Eastern Europe. Um, so I, I think that this is a problem all over, and you can see the rise of the far right in Europe um, and how uh, people are kind of retreating into, into, you know, anger there as well. Books like yours are certainly part of a long-range solution. Do you have any thoughts on one, a short-range solution? Uh, for who? For Europe? For, for, America, for Europe? For, for America? all of us? Yes. <laughs> well, I, I think we have to start with listening to each other. I think we have to start with, you know, suspending the judgment we feel um, and just listening to people. And I, I really do find that most people, when, when you stop and listen to them, you know, most people really, we share this common humanity. We share an interest in, you know, taking care of our families and, um, you know, feeling a sense of, uh, of duty to, towards, you know, our families, finding, you know, work that enriches us, um, feeling a sense of security. I mean, I think we share so much that, you know, we need to start there and to start listening to each other. And, uh, and then we can, you know, talk about some of these areas where we disagree. Um, but, you know, I, I think that we've kind of lost the ability to have civil discourse in this country. Living in Europe, did it change your perspective on America and how we're doing? Uh, you know, it's. I think anytime somebody lives abroad, it gives you a new perspective of your own country. I mean, one of my favorite novels is The Great Gatsby um, by F. Scott Fitzgerald, and he wrote most of that book in France. Um, and I think that that's an important part of why he, that's a great American novel, is that he had some distance and that he was looking at it from outside. Um, so I would say certainly it does change your perspective on things. Um, you know, there are, a lot, there are a lot of things I liked about life in Europe. Um, and then there are some things I really missed about America. And also living abroad teaches you some of the things that you maybe took for granted in your home and that, makes, that make you just really proud to be an American. And, for example, I find Americans to be, you know, uh, you know, I think Americans are really, there's a lot of ingenuity in this country. There's a lot of creativity. There's a lot of imagination. I think we're a very imaginative people. Um, but you can't be imaginative when you're frightened and when you're angry. Mm. What frightens you? What frightens me? Yeah. <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, I think what frightens me is uh, is my children growing up in a country where there's a lot of hate. Because I think that leads to violence. I think that leads to uh, people segregating themselves. Um, and I think it also leads to ultimately economic downturn. Because I think that our strength as a country comes from working together and comes from putting aside our differences. Um, so that's what frightens me. How do you combat that fear? How do I, excuse me? How do you combat that fear? How do I come back? Combat, combat it, fight it. Because oh, combat it's, it, yeah. It can how easily, do I yeah, easily how do overwhelm. We, yeah, how do we, how do we uh, combat all of that? I think the first step is, is going back to that idea of listening. Um, I think it's trying to put aside some of our assumptions about people. Um, I think it's, uh, you know, trying to... Uh, improve our education systems. I think it's trying to uh, improve the sense of people having, um, being able to have uh, economic mobility in this country, um, which I think has changed. There was a sense, you know, generations ago, my own grandparents, 
you know, there is this sense that their children were going to do better, that they're going to build a future for their children, and I think a lot of people don't feel that anymore. Um, they feel worried. Uh, so I think those are some of the things that you can do just to begin. Switching gears, though, from erasing the hate to heroism, why yes. did you put that in the book? Because I think right now that we don't know what a hero is. Um, and I wanted to really go back to this idea of heroism because I wanted people to think about how selflessness works. And that was this character of Albert Genard, this real you know, person who lived on the block, who hid this Jewish teenager. And he was a refugee, by the way, this, this teenager, because he had come from Germany. He was a German Jew who had, who had left that country um, and come to Belgium. And, you know, I feel that that oftentimes we think of a hero as somebody who is just a super achiever, as somebody who's just like, you know, has done more than we have or is a fighter or – but actually what I found is that there are – that, you know, my, my feeling is that there are a lot of ways to be a hero just on a very small level in your daily life, um, and that heroism often involves self-sacrifice, and it often involves being selfless and being open. Um, and, you know, when we were in Europe, one of the things that we did as a family is we went to a lot of the war sites um, all over Europe, uh, World War One and World War II. My son, who's 10, was very interested in a lot of the history. And, you know, that was another reminder, um, particularly when we were in Normandy and we went to the American cemetery there of, you know, of, of some of the best of America, of that sort of sense that we um, are going to go fight in a different land um, for something, you know, for, 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 for freedom and to, you know, help people, um, even though this is self-sacrifice in a lot of ways. And you see that in those rows and rows and rows of uh, crosses and stars. Um, and so I think it's very important to have people think about heroism, especially children, and how they can be heroes to somebody in their everyday life. But did you visit some of the sites from World Wars? That, yes, that, yes that, we did. that That were um, indicative of the worst of us? Absolutely. I mean, we, were, we went to Nuremberg, and we went to the court at Nuremberg, um, where, you know, the, the famous judgment of Nuremberg was served. Um, and there, is, there certainly is darkness. There certainly is. I, I don't mean to have a Pollyannish view that we can, you know, that, that, that we'll someday be in a society where everybody is happy and kind and open. I mean, this is a constant challenge because part of human nature is also to be tribal um, and to be, you know, to, to hate other people. Um, but this is something that I think, you know, it, 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 we, we all have to work toward. And Lord knows we've become a tribal society. Yeah, I mean, that's, and that's true as well in Europe. I mean, I think that this rise of tribalism and nativism, and it, it makes sense because when people are frightened, they try to be with other people they feel are like them. Um, and, but, but doing that, sometimes you miss the ability to listen and to find out all the ways in which different people can also be like you. And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP. One more commercial break, Catherine Marsh. Stay with me. Okay. We'll, we'll be back in just a bit. And we're backing into the home stretch of WIP Sunday with author Catherine Marsh, her young adult novel, Nowhere Boy. My name's Peter Solomon. Catherine, I've always had the impression life is slower, calmer in Europe. Is that true? You know, I thought it would be slower in Europe when I moved there, too, and I had this fantasy of kind of, you know, slowly hanging out at cafes and doing all these things you imagine people do in Europe. 
But because of the events of the first year I was there, there was, there was a lot going on because of the refugee crisis and the uh, terror attacks and a lot of that news. Um, we're also in the center of the European Union where there is a lot of uh, business going on at the uh, European Parliament um, and the Commission. And so it, it didn't feel quite as sleepy as I imagined. Um, on the other hand, there isn't a quality of life, I'd say, that, that is fairly nice there where people do take vacations, probably more than in this country, um, and uh, are not constantly reachable. Um, stores are often closed on Sundays, uh, so it does kind of slow down the pace of life somewhat. How is it different for children? Well, for children, that's a great question. And, you know, my children were in primary school, and, uh, you know, my youngest was actually in uh, the equivalent of uh, pre-K and kindergarten. Um, and I, I found the system there to be really nice for them because it's a little less academic um, in the early years um, and then and is more play-based. Um, and I have a piece out today in the uh, Washington Post about recess. Um, and play. And uh, one of the things that was hard for us coming back to the U.S. system is that the children had, uh, you know, nearly an hour of recess plus a 20-minute mid-morning break, and those were always outdoors. Um, and now that we're back in a uh, U.S. public school, uh, the children only get a 30-minute recess, and that is uh, indoors if the weather is bad and held in the classroom in that case. Um, so they get a lot less uh, playtime and a lot less uh, time to run around. Um, so there were certainly things that I really liked about the system there for children. How do you choose a topic for one of your young adult novels? That's a great question, too. Um, I would say that I look for things, for stories uh, about subjects that I'm confused about and that, uh, you know, I worry about. And, you know, often what I try to do as somebody who has a background as a, you know, political journalist um, but is also a parent is to try to find ways to uh, bring these stories uh, to life for children, and particularly with Nowhere Boy, um, is I wanted to deal with some of these big issues, uh, like the refugee crisis um, and who we are as Americans, um, but to find a way that children could could process it. Um, and so that's that's one way I find the stories. And this one was just really incredible, Peter, because, you know, I started writing it and events kept happening that worked their way into the book. And I've never had that happen before. I've done four previous books. Um, and this one almost kind of wrote itself in a way. What's the next book? The next book, uh, I want to write a book with uh, some girl characters. I, I have a son and a daughter. And this uh, Nowhere Boy is uh, really the two main characters are these two boys, Max and Ahmed, um, and the book also deals with, you know, boys' sort of sense of identity, um, and I know, you know, in this country we talk a lot about toxic masculinity, and, and this was a book that in some ways explored how boys can be gentle and kind um, and and be uh, get a sense of uh, worthiness through that rather than just through being aggressive. Um, I wanted to write next a book that would be about girls and about the experience of being a girl and the challenges um, of being able to speak openly and, you know, try to have an impact on the world as a girl. So my next book deals with that and also has some mythology in it as well. Ever a desire, though, to write something for grown-ups? 
I've thought about it. I, I enjoy doing journalism from time to time, um, essays and things like that. But I really love writing for children, and I think it's a very challenging thing. A lot, and a lot of people say, oh, that, you know, they often ask, oh, writing for children, I've always wanted to do that. It must be, you know, fun, and I have children or grandchildren. But it's very challenging because you really have to uh, meet kids where they're at. You have to tell a story. I think it's much more narrative than a, adult fiction. Um, you have to engage them in, in a story. Um, and I find those challenges to be really well suited to, to my interests um, as a writer. One question I always ask writers when I interview them, which is more important to you, a good review or a nice royalty check? <laughs> I would say I would say actually neither. What's most important to me is when I get feedback from a parent or kid. Um, I just got one actually that, that blew me away, and it was uh, from a parent who had a child with a learning disability, um, so they read the book together. Um, and she said after reading the book, this child said, I want to do something for refugees in my area, and they were going to get in touch with a uh, local refugee center. And this had really given him, he, he had enjoyed particularly the character of Max, who struggles more in school, um, and, and, you know, and one of the... Uh, things that happens to Max through the book is that he realizes that he can be somebody not just through achievement but through behavior and through kindness. Um, and this really, this, this, this child had really felt a connection to the character because of that. And that's, that is why I write. You know, it's not the royalty checks or the reviews. It's when I hear feedback like that, that makes me know I've done my job. Maybe someday a book about children with learning problems? Possibly, yes. And, I mean, the character of Max does, you know, I never spell out a, a disability or a learning problem, but he is not a particularly academic kid. And I do think we live in a culture where there's a lot of emphasis on achievement. Um, and that's wonderful, but there are kids who struggle more. And, um, and I think that we need to value them just as much because, you know, achievement, uh, you know, is, shouldn't be our only goal. It should also be... Uh, you know, as we talked about knowing how to listen, to be kind, to be open, um, and to be a connector. Which is one of the reasons why things like music and art are equally important to math and science. Absolutely, absolutely. And there are a lot of kids, I think, who really connect through that. Um, and in addition to music and art, also a movement and things that, you know, I, I think sports is an important part of this book, too. Um, you know, Ahmed is actually, a, like, like many children in Europe, plays soccer. Um, and that's something that is almost an international language, I think, for uh, children uh, in the rest of the world. Um, and so that gives him also a sense of belonging when he, get, he gets to school eventually and plays a, a soccer game. Catherine, do you in the book have a website? I do. I have a website. It's www.catherinemarsh.com, um, and it has a lot of the backstory of the book in it and some of the pictures of Albert Genar, the gentleman I talked about who saved a uh, Jewish uh, teenage refugee, um, and also some uh, factual information about the refugee crisis. And I'd like to say thank you to Catherine Marsh, young adult author, her new novel, Nowhere Boy. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Peter. It's been my pleasure as well. And you've been listening to WIP Sunday. I get a little confused. WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. Before we go, I want to say my heart, my thoughts, my prayers go to the people of North, South Carolina, and Upper Georgia and Lower Virginia. Hurricane Florence, now Tropical Florence, Storm Florence, hit with a heavy hammer on that area particularly the Outer Banks. I've spent some time in the Outer Banks. It's beautiful country, 
and so much of it now is underwater. Beautiful homes, nice people, good eats, all kinds of things that we value in the summer and the winter, gone. But I know, though, the Carolinas, Georgia, Northern Virginia, and all that good housing, eating, and vacation fun will bounce back. But they still need our thoughts, our prayers. A couple of dollars for the Red Cross if you've got them. North Carolinas, we're thinking of you. Stay tuned for Sports Talk with Sunny Hill. Always interesting and provocative discussion in the living room. Your opinion, Sunny's reaction. My, I know I'll be listening. We're going to have a sports update. My name's Peter Solomon. Thank you to Phil Jackson, this morning's producer, and to Ann Tideman Solomon, associate producer, here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. I couldn't do the show without you. Nothing left to say, but see you soon.